Can I just confirm how to pronounce your last name, please? Sure. Uh, it's Isratel. Isratel. Uh-huh. Got it. We would have definitely got you can really say whatever hell you want. I'm not remotely <laughs> attached to my name. It's purposefully, you know, if it's that hard to spell and pronounce, I, I'm in the wrong, so whatever. So if I introduce you as Susan Smith... You won't mind. It's fine. Okay. Just uh, just put Mike Isretel in the search bar so people can find the <laughs> like, podcast. It, it might look good. like Mike Isretel, but that's how it's pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's very fancy. There's a silent M at the start, so that's mm-hmm. all. Yeah. It, throw, it throws people off. You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. Welcome to another episode of the Propane Fitness Podcast. We have a guest with us this evening. We are interviewing today Mike Isretel from Renaissance Periodization. You've probably already heard of him, but to save me from absolutely butchering his introduction, I'm going to let Mike introduce himself. So Mike, do you want to say hi and just tell us a little bit about what you do, who you are, where you work, etc.? Yeah. Um, hello. Thank you f- so much for having me on, first of all. And um, I'm uh, supposedly, allegedly, purportedly, doctor, in quotations, Mike Isretel. Um, I actually do have a PhD in sport physiology from East Tennessee State University, where I learned how to take athletes and make them better. That is what I know best in this world. And I teach all of those uh, similar kinds of subjects at uh, uh, Temple University in Philadelphia in the United States. And I also teach uh, parts of nutrition and public health, which is a passion of mine. Um, I'm a competitor in bodybuilding, and I'm not very good at that. I also compete in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which I'm okay at. And I used to be a meh uh, raw powerlifting competitor way back when raw powerlifting was some kind of sideshow joke to equipment and I work for uh, Renaissance Periodization as well. I'm the head science consultant where I design templates and all kinds of other cool stuff and write books and help uh, people achieve their goals in a scientifically uh, supported way and hopefully cut the BS and let people achieve what they want in fitness with a, a straight-to-the-point kind of approach. That is a pretty cracking introduction. Yeah, you've certainly got a large hat to fit lots of, uh, lots of feathers I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, really good, man. So, um, would you rather have knees that don't bend or elbows that don't bend? And obviously, we've got to consider the the, the powerlifting implications of that as well. Well, you know, as a uh, bird advocate, I'm actually a little bit offended at your feathers reference. You know, feathers don't just come from nowhere; they come from birds. <laughs> we need them too. So, just let's just put that out there first. And second of all, my elbows actually don't bend, so I already know how that feels. That's not a problem for me at all. Life is great. <laughs> You used to have permanently straight arms all the time. Yeah, yeah, I can't be armbarred in jiu-jitsu. It's amazing. I just, I, I just throw it out there all the time. Guys fall for it, and they're like, oh my god, those elbows don't bend. What the hell's wrong? And then all of a sudden, I've got top position. It's great. <laughs> you don't find it a problem for like bicep growth or anything like that? Nah, nah. I, I've managed to train my bicep ex- exclusively through mental focus. Work around it. So I, I, I just think about biceps all the time, and believe it or not, there they are. Through mental focus and front raises and just... Does the Tensing, job. Tensing them really hard. Shoulder flexion work. That's it. <laughs> nice. That leads us on, I suppose, Mike, to the first thing that we wanted to, to chat to you about, I suppose, which is just your general principles 
for training when it comes to hypertrophy? Now, I realize that's a very expansive question, but if you have someone who is, let's say, starting out on their physique journey, how would you go about programming for pure hypertrophy? Someone who's wanting to improve their aesthetic appeal. Totally. So I do have a couple of really general principles I can share that I think boil things down to their main effects. I think one of the first things you need to do is make sure your program is designed for hypertrophy, not something else. So the principle of specificity basically says that, you know, whatever it is you want, there is the best way to train to get it. And no two things that you want are going to be trained for the same way. So like, for example, I see a lot of guys, especially freshmen at universities that used to play sports in high schools and they play maybe American football and they're, um, they're doing box jumps and cleans and heavy partial squats because that's what they used to do for football. And I talked to some of these guys and they asked me like, Oh, you know, how'd you get that big? And I talked to them. I'm like, why are you in the gym? And they say, well, I want to get huge. And I'm like, well, you know, so what are the power cleans for? And they're like, well, you know, like, you know, I'm like, no, I don't know. Uh, your program, if you really want to get big and are not playing football anymore, why are you training for sport performance? And a lot of people kind of have that mixed up. So one of the first things we can do to a program when we want to specify for hypertrophy is, is go through it with kind of a filter system and very skeptically look at anything that doesn't make any sense, right? Like some guys will be like, you know, it's like Monday I do legs and then like Wednesday I do like heavy triples in the squat. Like, so why are you doing heavy triples? Well, you know, for like strength or whatever. And you're like, okay, that seems like a very poor argument for hypertrophy that you're not yourself convinced of. And they're like, right, right, good point. So what should I do instead? Well, something you think will grow your legs, right? So the first thing is to make sure everything's for hypertrophy. The second thing is to make sure that the overload principle is properly being applied. And the first part of that is most of the weights that you lift most of the time outside of deloading in some special circumstances should be heavier than about 60% of your one repetition max on an exercise, right? And we can get very technical and specify exactly what that means, blah, blah, blah. But like if it doesn't feel, if the weight doesn't feel heavy in your hands, like if you can do it for more than 20 reps and you're just like flinging the weight around, like wee, you can like throw it and catch it again, it's probably not causing as much hypertrophy as you would like. So fundamentally you have to train pretty heavy, but because if you train way too heavy, you can't put in enough volume because the fatigue is super high from super heavy lifting, given any unit of volume, you probably shouldn't train too often with anything heavier than like a five repetition max. So the most productive training we're going to see for bodybuilding for hypertrophy is going to be between a five rep max and a 15 rep max with occasional flirtations with a 20 rep max and the metabolite kind of training, which I probably won't even mention in this is a sort of brief summary. And then now that we, we're training pretty well, the next consideration is uh, to make sure that you're training hard enough to get gains, which I call the minimum effective volume. So, you know, we can train super heavy for one set per week, but that's not going to do anything for almost anyone unless you're untrained. So you got to do enough sets to where you're at least getting minimum growth and you're not just maintaining, and not so many sets that it's more than you can recover from. So it's not above your maximum recoverable volume. So what you should do is when you start a mesocycle or a training phase, you should start with the number of sets that gives you kind of the minimum effect, and then you should slowly increase the set number and the weights a little bit, and um, you know maybe the proximity to failure. You train a, bit, a little bit harder every single session until some weeks later, your set numbers get you very close to your maximum recoverable volume or maybe just over it, and then you deload and, and repeat. Right? You can change some exercises between mesocycles or not. It's not a super big uh, deal. And then within that context, so, so we've taken care of the volume. And then frequency, generally speaking, for most individuals looking for size, anywhere between two and four times a week 
for overloading sessions for the same muscle group is a pretty good start. Uh, so, you know, you can train uh, smaller muscle groups like your biceps, rear delts, calves. You might be able to get away with training four times a week, hard each time. And, and for something like chest, back, legs, maybe twice a week, triceps, uh, depending on what kind of uh, design your triceps have and or genetics, etc. It might be, you know, anywhere between two to four times a week. And uh, fundamentally, you know, you train regularly. Start, you know, make sure most of your weights are about 60% 1RM and then progress over the course of the weeks to add volume and add a little bit of weight to your program. Deload when your fatigue gets too high and uh, every now and again, I would say between one and four months, depending on your style and a couple other factors, switch the exercises that you're using for your muscle groups. Do something you haven't done before to get some novel stimulus and uh, you're well on your way to good results. And of course, the eating stuff, but that's, uh, you know, a separate issue with making sure your nutrition is in line. Really like those principles. And obviously the question was kind of stemming from a Facebook post that you, you wrote a while ago, which was really succinctly going over these kind of general approach. Um, and I think the generalness of it, the, the fact that you're saying generally be training 60% plus and the simple heuristics of ad, ad sets as and when needed, it's not overly prescriptive. And uh, I think... It's really good to hear that fleshed out. So we did want to ask you a little bit as well about this idea of maximum recoverable volume. Could you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, it's a, a concept uh, that I developed uh, in, in pretty close cooperation with my colleague and, and, and best friend, uh, Dr. James Hoffman, where you know when we were uh, sports scientists in graduate school, we were assigned to, to sports teams. Um, to help them make sure that the coaches were executing the plan in a most scientifically structured way possible. We collected data on the teams and analyzed it. We were trying to come up with a way to explain this concept. To, so, so because, uh, as you guys probably know, um, a lot of sport coaches fall into this camp. Not all of them, but a lot. Fall into the camp of, like, the more you do, the better. Right? In, in, in wrestling, in practice, uh, we used to hear, you know, the, the the guy who's winning states right now, winning the state championships, which is like like a regional championship in the in the states. Um, it, you know, he's he's outworking you right now. You got to outwork the winner, and it's like, okay, well, obviously, yeah, to a point, doing more is good, but if you are not recovering, which literally means, by the definition of the term recovery, at least returning to your previous performance, a session after session. You are any extra work above your ability to recover is literally making you worse, right? I mean, by definition, you're just getting less and less and less good. So we couldn't. You that's a mouthful to say all that. So we uh, developed this term called maximum recoverable volume. It's the most amount of work any particular athlete in a situation can take until any more work on top of that just makes them worse. So that concept is really important because. It, you know, whatever else you do with your training, just make sure you don't go over your maximum recoverable volume. And a kind of corollary of that is, okay, so if uh, your maximum recoverable volume is a certain amount of work, and let's say that a certain amount of energy beneath that curve is required for adaptation, like just recovering is not good enough. So you need a little bit, you need to do a little less work than your maximum recoverable volume on average, because you need to get some energy, uh, some some body systems to allow you to adapt, not just recover. So anything just under maximum recoverable volume is probably where most of your training should be because if you're way under your maximum recoverable volume, let's say you can handle 20 sets per week uh, per body part. Let's say your legs, you wanna grow your quads. And your quads, the most it can recover from a week is 20 sets. Well, if you're training your quads with five sets per week on average of working sets, then, I mean, 
could you do at least 10 sets and get even better? Well, almost certainly, because you have, you're not even anywhere near tapping your recovery potential, right? Could you do 15 sets? Probably. Could you do 20 every week? No, because that's already at your MRV, right? But 15, 16, 17, maybe that's probably where most of your work should be. So not only does the maximum recoverable volume concept tell us that there's such a thing as too much training, it tells us generally that there's such a thing as not enough training that you could be doing to get even better than that. That's how the, the concept started. We've since taken a couple of derivative terms of that, minimum effective volume, maintenance volume, maximum adaptive volume, but they're all really kind of secondary terms. It all started with maximum recoverable volume, just admitting the fundamental fact that the more you train, the better you get until a point. And then after that point, the more you train, the worse you get. Knowing that point about yourself as an athlete or about the athletes you coach, probably a good idea. Because if you don't know that point, you could be making them worse or they could get it better pretty slowly. And someone could say, why don't you guys train more? And you would have nothing back to say to them because you have no idea. It's a really, um, it's something that I don't think I've ever heard people discuss in the way that you discuss it, Mike. It's a really interesting concept. I think the part that I'm... Maybe a little unclear on, I suppose, is, is how it actually filters through in a, in a practical sense. So someone who's got a few years of training experience, you know, how would they go about even determining what their max, max recoverable volume was, either for a muscle yeah. or systemically? For sure. So, like, um, you know, it, the easiest way I can give an example to is just to track your gym performance. So it all starts with the term recovery. We know that recovery... The technical definition is a return to baseline performance. So let's say you can bench press 100 kilos for a set of 10. That's usually your 10 rep max, right? just, just about somewhere. Now, you know, some good days you can do 11 reps. Bad days you can only do 9 or 8. Just about 10 is where you should be. And you are having a mesocycle in which you're bench pressing. And you're also doing a whole bunch of chest work. So... When you work your chest and your triceps, let's say you're working them with you know a certain number of sets a week, 10 sets or 15 sets per week, and you're going through your mesocycles, and you're benching, let's say, 105 kilos for sets of eight, week after that, it's 107.5 for sets of eight again, week after that, it's 110 kilos for sets of seven, and then let's say you deload, and then you start the cycle over again at a little bit of a heavier weight. You know, 110 for sets of seven converts by by the formula, right, by the 10RM formula or the one, one rep max formula to, to, to predict about the same level of strength. So when you've successfully benched 110 kilos for sets of seven, uh, you, that means you're not any weaker than when you were benching uh, 100 kilos for sets, uh, for, for sets of 10 or something or a set of 10. So, so all is well, you probably in that week before you deloaded, you probably didn't exceed your maximum recoverable volume because there is no evidence that you're not recovering. You are very well recovered enough to maintain your regular level of performance. Now let's envision another mic. Let's say you hit another mesocycle, continue benching. Let's say you start off with, uh, you know, uh, 95 kilos and you're hitting it for 12s, right? And then 97.5, you're hitting it for like sets of 11, sets of 12, something like that. And let's say in those two weeks, you tried doing super high volume training. You know, you did 18 sets in the first week and let's say 22 sets in the second week. Beat your chest and triceps to death with bench presses and a bunch of other exercises. That third week, you may come in and you're benching 100 kilos, but sets of like eight or nine are a struggle. And you're like, mm, okay, maybe something's off. Maybe I'm having a bad week. 
you hit another 24 sets, maybe 22 sets again that week, or even 24, you come back on week number four, you bench, and it's 102.5 kilos, which you would normally expect to bench me at least for set of nine. You're benching it for sets of five, and they're hard. I think we've all been here at yep. some point or another with our training. So you start to go, man, uh, something's wrong. I did not recover. Now, what was it that I didn't recover from? Now, you could say you had a really bad week. You broke up with your girlfriend, super bad sleep, uh, drug habit in your face again. You know, you've been hitting the heroin pipe, et cetera. We all have our... our all three of those habits. for me. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> right? week. Your girlfriend yeah. left. You're like, heroin's all I have. And sleep because <laughs> you're high all the time. So, um, so in any case, uh, it could be just an off week, right? So you note in your little training notebook, okay, uh, when I went to 22 and then 24 sets, I seemed to get weaker. I wasn't recovering. Now, that, that could be because of other factors. So here's what you do. In the next mesocycle, so you deload, drop all of your fatigue. In the next mesocycle, you might start at 16 or 18 sets of chest work or ch chest and triceps work and then jump over 20 again in the weeks after. And if your maximum recoverable volume is about 20 sets, as soon as you pass 20, when you hit 20 and then 22, your performance in the bench press is going to go straight to hell. And the good thing about this is that your performance in every other pushing movement is going to go straight to hell too. Like your bench is weak, your incline is weak, your shoulder press is weak, what the hell is going on? It means that you cannot recover reliably for more than 20 sets a week. You have basically started to really hint at your maximum recoverable volume. So now you've got one of two choices. One, you start training with less volume, maybe going from 14 to 16 to 18 sets and then deloading over the weeks. Or you can be an idiot about things and be like, no, brother, no such thing as overtraining and just keep pushing 20 and keep having shitty workouts and not recover and not grow much. So the way you find your MRV is very ecologically. You do it in training. And the thing is that sounds kind of complicated, everything I said, like you have to track shit, write shit down. The thing is, most guys who've been training for a while, guys and girls who've been training for three, four, five years, they get to be very aware of what's too much for them. You know, there's always that buddy you have in the gym and maybe visiting for another town and he's like, hey, let's go to the gym and do this crazy workout I found in a muscle magazine. And you look at it, you're like, bro, I'm just not going to recover from this. I know my body. Like, I can't do 10 sets of 10 in the deadlift. I'm going to die. Hey, that and, friend. <clears throat> uh, yeah, exactly. Nobody likes that friend. Usually you just like, you let him call you and you're like, oh, sorry, I was busy with all kinds of other things except for seeing you. I just didn't want to do that. Yep. So... Um, <laughs> And that's the thing is that, you know, most people get to know what's the most they can recover. What I'm proposing is that those individuals keep track of those numbers over time. I'm a big fan of tracking. Write that down so that you don't have to guess anymore. Because a lot of guys, you know, will say, man, you know, my biceps training was going so well like six months ago, but now it's kind of bad. I don't know what's going on. One of the first things I ask is, well, how many sets, working sets a week do you do for biceps on average? And they go, you know, it's kind of by feel. Like, fuck, that's it? That's all you got for me? Well, guess what? You're going to have to feel your dumb ass through what's wrong with you because you didn't write anything down. Like, you imagine a mechanic being like, something wrong with your car. You're like, what is it? Well, like, I feel like there's something wrong with it. Like, well, fuck. <laughs> so I think this is, is cool? a really, this is a really interesting point, actually, because we're, we're big proponents of tracking as well. And I think numbers, as you said, come first, and then the feel comes later. And I think a lot of people try and skip that initial bit of tracking the numbers and gaining hordes of data initially until it becomes unconscious pattern recognition and um in yeah as you said with with a mechanic they might come in and have a feel for what's wrong with the car mm -hmm. but actually there's maybe thousands of variables that are being weighed up unconsciously by their minds and then it spits out an output that they're maybe not consciously aware of so 
Um, I think, yeah, that's, that's a really important point. And you, you kind of half answered my next question, which is that all of this that you're talking about so far is kind of the outputs of how's your performance going and um, based on the numbers. Are there any kind of physiological markers or um, mood, things like that, uh, sleep, that you would also use to see how much is too much? Oh, man, I mean, there's a super rich literature on fatigue indices, and it's very extensive. I've written about it uh, with with uh, Dr. James Hoffman uh, and a bunch of articles on juggernaut training systems. Actually, if your listeners are curious, that's where you can find them. Um, so, so here's the deal. There are three kinds of indicators of fatigue. Leading indicators, concurrent indicators, and lagging indicators. Leading indicators tell you fatigue is coming, but you don't have it yet in, in anything – that is overly high. And remember, once you cross your MRV, once you're doing more than you can recover from, fatigue skyrockets, right? Because it simply can't be dealt with anymore. So you know when fatigue is coming that's high. Um, set number, training load, is actually a leading indicator of fatigue. Like if you've got a week, next week, you're planning on your MRV, let's say on average for a body part, is 20 sets. And you got a week in which you're doing 22 sets on everything that is a lead, that training volume is a leading indicator of fatigue because you know if you do that week later you will be fatigued most often right poor sleep and poor nutrition uh, high stress also leading indicators of fatigue like if you're perfectly hunky dory and everything's fine and then you go through a high stress period where you don't sleep much you don't eat much you are going to develop fatigue from that so those are leading indicators concurrent indicators are ones that tell you okay you're pretty much fatigued right now Declines in strength are one of them, and that's the one I was using for the maximum recoverable volume example. Like you're literally just not performing to what you used to be, right? And there's a couple other ones that are concurrent. The uh, ones that are lagging indicators, they're kind of – I would say for most, most athletes and trainers should use them in a sense of, okay, now for sure I've got to pull back. Because if you flirt with these too long, you, you go from overreaching to overtraining, and they can take weeks or months or never to come back to best performances from that. Those include uh, serious sleep disturbances, serious mood disturbances, particularly feelings of helplessness. Right? Um, you know when you feel overwhelmed with everything? Yeah. Uh, that can be a factor. And uh, a loss of appetite is also one of them. One of the biggest warning signs that you're doing too much volume compared to what you can recover from is if you are dieting hypocalorically to lose fat and all of a sudden you, you don't have a high level of appetite because you're supposed to be hungry and you're not. That's real bad news. So those mechanisms, and, and there's many, any more uh, that like, we can link articles to, are absolutely great to also track with your training. They're generally the ones that communicate systemic fatigue, right? So you can actually exceed your maximum recoverable volume in a single body part, but if you're okay on the others, you won't experience those symptoms outside of strength in that body part uh, and maybe a couple of other ones. So it's a little bit of a different process. Systemic uh, MRV, and there's such a thing, the most volume, all the sets combined of your whole workout that you can handle, um, that is really well estimated with performance, obviously, and all those other in indicators. But when you're talking about systemic versus uh, local indicators of fatigue, like if your calves are overreached, you know, your calves aren't that big of a muscle that's going to affect the rest of your body. Your appetite could be great. Your sleep can be amazing because the rest of your body you're training properly, but you might be overdoing it on calves. At that point, I would say uh, pr uh, pronounced reductions of strength 
um, what are called benign fasciculations. That's when your muscles uh, cramp up on you randomly. You guys like have a muscle just you sit there and it starts firing for no reason. And you're like, okay, what the hell is wrong with me? That's probably a good. So so basically, excitation contraction coupling through extensive damage to the membrane can start to be compromised. That's a good sign. Uh, extreme soreness or like a dull ache that just continues to persist for no reason. Those are signs that a muscle is, is really starting to get beat up. The good thing is strength losses almost always come before all those nasty ones. You just have to be stupid enough to ignore them. So if your muscle isn't performing to its normal capacity, back off, back off for sure. So what you're saying is that if you're starting to experience the lead in, the lag indicators, that's probably because you've already pushed through and ignored the lead indicators and by that point and it's the, already and the concurrent ones absolutely at that point you know we keep it we keep tabs with athletes on their lagging indicators because that's the stop loss kind of thing like okay for sure this is bad it's not just because you know some of the indicators especially the leading ones you can have a bad week of eating and still plow through and recover just fine just you know okay you ate enough calories and you're okay just didn't affect you that much maybe your stress levels weren't super high and you sort of got enough sleep and everything was fine but the when the lagging indicators come you know it's really time to back off you know you've already probably gone too far so i imagine this depends very much on the athlete's temperament as well that if they're the kind of uh, balls to the wall kind of character that would consciously ignore these signs, then um, they're going to maybe need the coach to step in at some point and say, maybe chill out a bit. I would say that's a very, very good utility of a coach. Um, you know, I myself have uh, a coach <laughs> and uh, he's a guy that's uh, very, very smart and knows his nutrition and supplementation super well and knows training very well. And he always tells me, he's like, Mike, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but stop being an idiot. Yeah. And I'm like, right, 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 right. Because it's easy, you know, especially if you're a balls to the wall kind of person, which a lot of us are. That's why we train. I mean, we're talking to an audience that primarily loves to train. So the number of people that aren't balls to the wall people is going to be very low. Most of us, if they said, hey, listen, you could get double the gains if you trained twice as much, most of us would just be like, great, I'll just live in the gym, <laughs> right? So a lot of us need a reasonable voice. So we don't want... When we say, ooh, I should back off, I think probably 90% of people who train hard immediately think, ooh, am I just being a wuss? Like, am I just trying to make excuses for myself because I'm a lazy bastard? And bouncing it off of another person who's also reasonable, they can look at your numbers, they can ask you how you feel, and then they can go, okay, you need to back off. Or they can go, you know what, I think you're good to go. And uh, so I think in that respect, coaching is really good, but also some personal honesty. You know, the, a true warrior, a true athlete who's going to go as far as they can, does what it takes. And when what it takes means a deload or some rest days, they do that too. Some people say like, oh man, I'm so committed to the sport. I hate deloading. That's nice. Shut up. You might hate training too. You might hate dieting, but you do those even though they're hard because that's what it takes. So when it's coming time for a recovery week, you got to do what it takes too. Sometimes you got to go to the gym only twice a week, lift super light, and just spend the rest of your time watching TV, eating food, and relaxing with friends. And that's exactly what's going to make you better. And if you can't do that part, then you're just using training mostly for a psychological benefit. And don't worry about winning anything or competing at a high level because obviously you don't have what it takes to do that. We, I think we've both had this idea that uh, the need to be coached. It's been reinforced to us multiple times. We've moved away from coaching for various reasons try to manage our own diet, training, etc. You get kind of stung with it a little bit, I think. You know, you, you run into these situations that you talk about where you're trying to make decisions objectively for yourself and for whatever reason, the, the balls to the wall mentality that's underlying in the majority of people 
takes over and you end up doing stupid stuff for too long, ignore the the sensible information and you end up under recovered, etc. So I think the thing that you're you're kind of that, that's outlined by everything that you're saying here, Mike, that I don't really think is is often discussed that much is that the key here is is increasing or improving your ability to recover as much as possible. Because obviously you you, you highlighted at the beginning that you want to do as much volume as possible, assuming you can recover from it. So the more volume you can recover from, the better your progress will be ultimately, I suppose. What would you normally have an athlete manage or ensure was in place to get the most out of a natural athlete's recovery capacity, whether that be nutrition, sleep, habits, whatever? What, what would you normally yeah, have in place? Yeah, because the good news is it's the same answer for natural and for enhanced athletes. Sleep is number one. You just absolutely don't mess with sleep. I don't care how much gear you're on or how much gear you're not on. You don't sleep. Everything's going to hell. So you need to have enough sleep. And everyone knows what enough sleep is. It's easy definition. When you can walk around during the day, not fall asleep and not have your eyes hurt. You guys know that like eye pain that you get from not sleeping, like uh, just kind of like, you know, itchy eyes. Um, if you can walk around day to day like that, you're sleeping enough. For some people, that's seven hours a night. For some people, that's nine hours a night. And most people fall somewhere between the two. So get enough sleep is number one and get regular sleep. And a lot of times getting sleep means you got to like do stuff that's not fun. You know, I would like to stay up to all odd hours watching cops. Do you guys have that show in the UK? Called Cops? Yeah. I don't think so, no. We have similar stuff. Is it a drama or like a, like a reality thing show following cops around? Uh, it's a reality show following actual cops around. It's hilarious. Uh, okay. it's, it's like the most it's like the, just really insane stuff. Highly entertaining. There was actually a, a, a British uh, similar thing where Vinnie Jones, of all people, followed some uh, cops around. Um, <laughs> thing is, Mike, it was like hilarious. British, uh, like if you look at British police shows, they're the most mundane things compared to the American ones. Like the, the most that anyone's ever done is like stolen a, a cupcake and they and the police maybe carry a stick if they're like the highly level trained ones Whereas yeah i feel like in, in in the states like every like bobby on the beat equivalent has just got like an ak yeah pretty much man you know we got all the crime yahoo you got you know we might catch some cool cockney on your shows or whatever but uh but but anyway so like um you know, if you, I, I'd love to stay up to odd hours watching cops, but I got to wake up to go teach class early tomorrow and I need my sleep. So I go to bed at like 9.30 some nights. 9.30? I'm like a 32-year-old man. So I, you know, what the hell? I, I know, right? I, when I was eight years old, I had to go to bed really early. I thought, when I'm a grown-up, I'm just going to go to bed whenever I want. Now I'm <laughs> supposedly successful and uh, I'm still going to bed at 9.30. This sucks. But, but you got it. And I'm not a nighttime. Uh, I'm, I'm a nighttime person. I'm not a morning person. So it sucks for me to have to fall asleep then, but I do what it takes because sleep is that important. Secondly is nutrition. And the most important thing about nutrition is calories. Calories are the most contributive variable of nutrition to recovery ability. And so long as you're getting your calories, you're well on your way. After that, it's actually carbohydrates because carbohydrates fuel training and recovery more than protein. Protein fuels growth more. Carbohydrates have more to do with recovery and an ability to withstand training volumes, which is why uh, endurance athletes predominantly eat carbohydrate instead of protein. They train more than all of us combined. So uh, get your carbs in, get your protein in. Of course, it's important. Get your fats in. And then, of course, food quality, composition, timing, all that stuff is minor in details, but still important. So once you have your sleep and your diet, I think the next big piece is stress. You want to keep your daily stress as low as possible. And you want to make sure that you get all your work done on time, 
don't have things where you're procrastinating or being late, things on your mind that are worrying about you. Try to worry as little as possible. And what I like to do, and Dr. Hoffman talks about this all the time, is a really good idea. Have either half an hour, an hour or more every day or most days, just time to yourself, time where you watch stupid TV shows um, or you play on your iPhone or something like that, just super relaxing, have a good meal, just sit down, don't think about anything crazy, don't do work, because some people rush so much back and forth this way and that way, they never release. And then so in combination with sleep, diet, and recovery and making sure not to freak out all the time, so especially like something like in traffic or like the train is late and you're headed to work or headed to train a client or something like that. Well, you know, you, unfortunately, are not Magneto. You don't have mind powers over metal. You can't get the train to come early. Uh, so there's nothing to worry about. I mean, literally, there's nothing to worry about because worrying is completely purposeless emotion outside of the jungle. So stop worrying as much as you can. And if you're more relaxed, you have higher levels of testosterone, lower levels of cortisol, and you're well on your way to recovering much better. So I think those modalities, sleep, food, and uh, being as relaxed as possible, are, are the cornerstone of, uh, of, of making sure your MRV is as high as it can be. And if those are off by a lot, uh, your MRV is going to be incredibly low. You won't be able to recover from anything. And then obviously you won't be able to progress. So, so essentially, Mike, you need to sacrifice to win, but be as calm as possible about the sacrifices. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it really is the reality of the matter is that uh, you should live your life if you want to be the best at whatever sport you chose. You, your life should be uh, very much like a machine, but a very calm, relaxed, happy machine that sleeps a lot and eats well. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, you know, and that's the thing is that a lot of guys get that hardcore mentality and they start taking everything so fucking seriously. Like, bro, I got this workout, brother. I could die. But if I live, then I will eat a, another meal of boring oats and whey because <laughs> sacrifice and all the shit. Like, fuck, like, shut up. Like, relax, easy. Just go do your training, train hard, and then when you're not training, uh, just be easy and uh, and don't put so much stress on yourself. And I promise that all the stress people put on themselves is wholly useless. Just get your work done. So we, we had an interview with a guy called Kit Lachlan a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> and he mentioned a, a similar point saying that particularly for lifters, when like lifters that work desk jobs, they are a population who go to work, they're generally hunched over a, a desk and being quite stressed most of the day. And then the only training that they do is very much kind of sympathetic, um, aggressive style stuff. And they never really learn to cultivate that ability to relax. And uh, so he says that you have to have some kind of deliberate practice to counteract that. Otherwise, you're going to turn into a bit of a, a pressure cooker. So really interesting that um you say say something, something quite similar I, I i you know i agree very much i mean you gotta you can't stay wound up all the time because and you know a great time to relax is after training right because after training you're so tired um your par parasympathetic nervous system is really ready to turn on anyway so after you've done your training for the day come home relax eat food uh, watch some stupid TV or something, talk with your friends. And if you make that a ritual that is included in most or every day of your life, that's a really good start. And, and then you can uh, make sure to manage your stress. And when you're sleeping a lot on top of that, that's great. Um, and and uh, some people try to fit so much into their lives, they run out of room for everything else, and they think they forget to ask the question of why the hell am I doing all this stuff? 